In your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let me preface what I'm going to say uh, by saying that there is a hazard in front of us. Much like you would, um, I don't know, how many, how many of you have been down Wakarusa Drive lately? Anybody been down Wakarusa Drive? You're like past 15th Street? It's terrible. You know, like I'm so looking forward to that being done. You know, uh, one of our members is the project manager and I'd keep asking like, when's it going to be done? When's it going to be done? When's it going to be done? And he just won't give me an answer. It's going to be a long time. But if you're not paying attention, if you're not paying attention, you might go the wrong way on a one-way road. And if you've ever done that, you know that you're in trouble and that's a hazard in the road. So if you're not paying attention, in the same way, when we come to familiar texts within the scriptures, we can oftentimes become sentimental about these texts. So we come to Luke chapter 2 today, and, and so many of you have heard Luke chapter 2 over and over again. I mean, it's every Christmas, every Christmas Eve, I mean, Advent, we're, we're, we're gaining, you know, as we think about Luke chapter 2. I mean, some of you, you know, might only come to church once a year, and we're glad to have you back. That's wonderful. You're invited all year long. We do this every week, right? And so, but Luke chapter 2, we can become sentimental about it. We begin to think about things like, oh, what about the Christmas when I grew up? And I, you remember good Christmases, you remember bad Christmases, but that's the hazard in the midst of a familiar text, because what happens is we begin to become sentimental, and we don't think about what God is trying to impart and speak to us about this particular text. So we can become sentimental and nostalgic rather than asking the Lord God of heaven to do a work in our lives in the midst of this text. So that's the hazard in front of us today, taking a familiar text, which you've heard, you might even read tonight, or you'll definitely read it tonight if you come back, but you might even read it tomorrow. But taking this text and and, and thinking through it. Um, So let me pray for us as we jump into a familiar text. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, I pray, Lord, that, that your inerrant, infallible rule of faith and practice would so work in our hearts that we might believe more, that we might love Jesus and serve him more. And Father, as, we, as I read, as I preach, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of thought and lucidity of speech and that those who are listening might be able to listen attentively But Father, we pray let the Holy Spirit would come and he would do a work in our lives. So Father, would you help us? Open and reveal yourself to us in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay, the opening words. The opening words right here are are tremendous. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, it's, it's very interesting here when we think about the term Caesar Augustus. You know, he was, um, that Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the entire Roman world, but he was the first, he was the first to be called Augustus. And when the, when the Roman Senate voted to give him that title, Augustus means holy or revered. So when it's Augustus Caesar, the August Caesar, it is revered or holy Caesar. Now, what's significant about that is this, that this, at the time, this term Augustus, meaning holy or revered, was reserved exclusively for the gods. It was under Augustus' rule that decisive strides were taken toward making the Caesars gods. In fact, at about the same time Luke was writing these words, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year, hailing him as Savior. Think about that. So in the Greek world, some cities began to say, you know, this day, the 23rd day of um, September was the first day because this was his birthday. Um... An inscription in the ancient world actually had, um, uh, and, and a statue actually called him the savior of the world. And when Caesar Augustus died, men actually comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a god and the gods do not die. So the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted god and savior. Luke, the historian who's writing this gospel, wants us to see this as the paradigm or for understanding the coming of the real Savior and the contrast between Augustus Caesar and Jesus couldn't be any greater. So again, when we we read about this, we see that that in the midst of God's providence and and the orchestrating of God's economy, he actually is using Caesar and Quirinius to bring about that Joseph would bring about his wife to the city of David, because Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth, and we know 
that the prophecies said long ago that the, the one who was to be born king and savior of the world would not be born in Nazareth, but rather he would be born in Bethlehem. So think about this. The orchestrating of God's providence, his sovereign rule and reign was to have Quirinius, um, you know, that, that under Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So think about this. The way that the Lord God of heaven orchestrated for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem was through the greed of the Roman Empire for taxes. Because that's what you wanted when you did a census. The reason you took a census is so that you would know how many people live there, how many freedmen, everybody else, so that you would know how to tax the people rightly. So that God was using, you know, the greed of wicked men who, who proclaimed themselves gods, he was using them to actually bring about the, the transport of Joseph and his very pregnant wife. You know, who was probably, you know, some, some people would say somewhere between the ages of 13 and 7, you know, probably 13 and 16 is all I've read. And, and think about this, 80 miles 80 miles, and she probably walked a lot of that. Now, maybe they had a donkey. I mean, that's what we see all the time, but we don't really know, right? But 80 miles, very pregnant, you know, on a mule or a donkey or whatever. You know, think about these things. All of these things were happening to orchestrate this plan. Now, when we think about these things, I want us to think about what was declared to the shepherds. Because but because really what happens is when, when Jesus was born, you know, again, when, when Jesus was, was born, he was born in a very humble, meager way. But there's a meaning behind what was said here. And the meaning is really, you know, he's born, but the meaning is the rest of the gospel, the rest of the New Testament, and everything else that we read. So let's, let's think about this, this, this meaning. So this, this child is born, and let's jump down to verse 8. So, so humble beginning for Jesus, certainly. You're born in a manger. You know, no room for them in the end. We all get that. You're wrapped in swaddling claws by his you know, the firstborn child. I mean, just for a second, I want you to think about this. Dads. How many dads have been in the uh, delivery room? Right? Right? Can you imagine doing this in your shed, outside your house, by yourself, with no other help, right? That's what we're talking about here. There's no other help going on. You're in a shed, not that great, and you're with your wife, giving birth to your firstborn, and you don't have a lot of medical training. This is what's going on right now. I mean, this is a miraculous, you know, I mean, very humble start. But the meaning is this in verse 8, because in the meaning, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we hear that, you know, and, and we might just dismiss it really, really quickly. But, but the reality is this, is that shepherds were not perceived to be good guys. I mean, there was, a, being a shepherd was a low place on the totem pole. Shepherds were not allowed to give witness in, in trials because they thought that they were dishonest, a bunch of stealing, you know, dirty men who were around sheep all day. 
The only people that were lower than shepherds in, in Israel in that day were probably lepers and slaves. That's it. And yet the Lord God of heaven decided to send an angel to shepherds first. And what did he say? An angel in verse 9. So he, so he sends, you know, in the same region, in the same region around Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, and they were watching their flock at night. And in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And naturally, and they were filled with great fear. Because when the glory of God, you know, surprises you, or actually, quite frankly, if the glory of God doesn't surprise you, you're going to be fearful. And, and what happens when, when the glory of God, because imagine you're a shepherd, you're not thought of very highly, you know, you're, you're thought to be a, a, you know, a thief, one who steals, one who is not honest, all of those things, and now the glory of the Lord shines around you. The angel actually says, fear not. Fear not, which is a good thing, and actually, fear not, I believe it actually, um, that term, fear not, do not be afraid, actually happens about 366 times within the scriptures. So even on leap year, there's enough for one a day where we need to hear that in the midst of the holiness of God and the reverence of God. And, And they say this, they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, this, this good news is actually this term, the gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. So this, this aspect of the gospel, it is, you know, in the ancient world, the gospel was when a new king was crowned. So if I'm bringing you the gospel, I'm saying that a new king has been crowned and he is now reigning and ruling. That's what gospel means in the ancient world. So if I'm bringing you the gospel, it is the good news that a new king is now ruling and reigning. And that this, this new king, this new king, of this will be great joy because he will be a righteous king, as we think about Isaiah 9 and all the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament about, you know, he would be a righteous ruler. We talked about that in Psalm 45 as well as Psalm 72 these last two weeks. A king that would bring righteousness to bear and he would do away with injustice. And he would be good for all the people. For when a good king rules and reigns, the people rejoice. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I'll get back to this idea of a sign here in a second. But I I, want to go, uh, skip down with me if you're in verse 14. Because this is astounding and I, and I think I missed this for a long time. And, and, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. So it goes from one angel to a myriad, a panoply, an excessive amount of angels that they can't even number the amount of angels. And with one angel, the glory of the God shone around him, this one messenger. Now we have this multitude. We don't know how many. And they began to say this, and this is so significant. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christopher Ashe says this, and I think this is so helpful. He says, in the highest heaven, glory to God in the highest. The highest heaven is not a place in this space-time universe. 
You can't find it with a spacecraft, no matter how many light years you may travel. No, the highest heaven is a vivid way of speaking about God's place, where God dwells in unapproachable light, a place above and beyond this whole created universe. In this place, the triune God dwells. Glory is the outward shining of God's inward being. It is when his invisible, weighty majesty becomes somehow visible and tangible to his creatures. So when the angels declare glory to God in the highest heaven, they proclaim, and get this, this is is so significant, they proclaim that with the birth of this boy, who is the eternal son of God, the invisible God has made himself visible. And even in the highest place, glory shines in a way in which glory did not shine before. That is an astonishing thought. For we are not talking about earth, we are speaking about the heavenly places. In that wonderful place where God's glory shines through all eternity, in some unimaginable way, glory shines with greater unparalleled splendor when Jesus is born. So not only, you know, here on earth, but in the highest heavens, the manifestations of God's glory is shining brighter because of the birth of Jesus. And so the angels, the angels begin to, you know, praise God. And so they weren't just saying these things, but they were glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. J.C. Ryle says, the language used by the angel in announcing Christ's birth to the shepherds, he says, I bring you this news. The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be crushed. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake justify the ungodly. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, then there never were tidings that deserved that name. This idea that that joy would come and I think, you know, when we think about this, and let, let me spend a little bit of time here, that, that when, when we look at what the angel said, the first angel in verse 10, it says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then when the multitude of angels begin to cry out, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, there's this, this aspect of, of joy that is found in the person of Jesus. Now, um, Many of you know uh, that, that you know, I grew up in Virginia, um, and, and one of the you know, founding fathers of, of Virginia, as well as like the country, you know, is Thomas Jefferson, right? And so when he writes in the Declaration of Independence that we are um, to be um, the, uh, um, the pursuit of happiness, you know, you know that we are, we are given that as an inalienable right, as it were, right? Life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness, which is, you know, really, you know, John Locke, life, liberty, and personal property. He, he, Thomas Jefferson changed that. And, and what you find is that we are driven by a pursuit of our own personal happiness. You get that, right? Like, we, we are pursuing happiness all the time. Like, you and me, right? Like, we're doing that all the time. Like, we are on a quest so that we can make ourselves happy. Everything you do is to make yourself happy, right? Well, um, what we see in the midst of happiness compared to joy is that, and the difference here is that joy is lasting, it is eternal, and it is the person of Jesus. But happiness is based upon our happenings in this world. Our happiness comes from what affects us. And what we find is that in the midst of the scriptures, the angels come and they say this, that we bring you good news of great joy. And again, that gospel, this reigning of a new king is meant to bring you joy, and that joy will be for all people. You know, when... um, a study was taken, you know, I can't remember where it was, but, you know, there were different uh, mothers around the world were asked what they wanted for their children. It's really interesting. Um, uh, Jewish mothers were asked what they wanted for their children, and they said, obedience. That's what we want. Asian mothers were asked, success, you know. And then, you know, American mothers were asked, and they said, I want my kids to be happy. And so we're on this happiness pursuit, this happiness quest, right? And oftentimes there are three things um, that people will do to bring about happiness in their own lives. The first of which, and you get this, is self-improvement. If I could just change this about me, right? Now we're about a week away when a bunch of you are going to make some outlandish promises to yourself about getting in shape, right? About how much better you're going to eat, how much weight you're going to lose. And I mean, some of you are like, you know what? I I think I'm going to see my abs for the first time next year. And some of you know that you haven't seen your abs since Roy Williams coached at Kansas, right? Or ever for that matter, right? I mean, that's part of the deal. And yet we, we spend our time thinking like, if I can just do these things, then I will be happy, right? Self-improvement. If I could just change this, maybe it's about my health, Maybe it's about, you know, um, and, and whether or not you, you, you work on your health through exercise or surgery or, or whatever, you know, you know that, you know, oftentimes it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting sometimes. And you get frustrated and you get bitter and all of these things. Or, or what about, you know, self-improvement? I need to get a better, you know, job. You, you beg God to give you a particular job. It's really funny that anybody here ever complain about their job? Anybody? It may be the very job that you ask God to give you the prior year, and that the answer to the prayer request that you got was actually the thing that you're complaining about right now. It could be a job. It could be um, a hobby. You know, if I, if I can just, you know, break 80 on the golf course, or if I can shoot a bigger uh, deer, or if I can, you know, land that big fish, or, you know, if I can just learn how to play this, then, then I'll be, you know, happy. But the reality is, in the midst of pursuing these things, they're not eternal. You know, this, this self-improvement, you know, pathway that we're on, they're, they're not eternal. Or, you know, let's say, rather than self-improvement, 
you turn to thinking that others are going to bring you happiness or joy. Think about when people pursue relationships that think they will make them happy. You know, people will think sometimes, man, if I only had a husband, then I'll be happy. Any of you wives want to say, correct that maybe? Anybody out there like, yeah, that's not going to make you happy. <laughs> you know, what about um, if I can only, you know, have um, these children, if I can only have a child or more children, will that make me happy? I'm here to tell you that if you're resting your happiness based upon how grateful your children will respond tomorrow afternoon to the gifts that you have given them, then you are in for a, um, a really, really abrupt end to that. Yeah, anybody? Um, by the way, you know, like Christmas is a wonderful time. We love Christmas. But, but if you think that at the end of the day tomorrow that your life will be more fulfilled, that you will find eternal, lasting joy in all the events around Christmas, the happenings that happen around Christmas, then you're mistaken. It's amazing. Um, or, you know, whether it's self-improvement or maybe it's relationships, the other one that oftentimes people think about is maybe I, what the world has to offer. Maybe the world will bring me happiness and joy. We think about this, um, you know, maybe it's, you know, um, you, know you, you hear about the, the moniker sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or maybe it's for vacations, or maybe partying is fun, but you know the hangover isn't. You know, the road to addiction is a pretty sweet path, but the end of the road is brutal. We see this time and time again, that happiness goes away. It's momentary. Let me give you a, just a, an easy one. Um, and, and this is also just a word of reproof as well. Um, uh, I grew up at the beach. I grew up in Virginia Beach. And uh, Virginia Beach was a fun place to go. I would never go to the oceanfront. There was a little place called Sandbridge that we would go to. That's where all the locals went. And uh, we would always go there because we would go there because we didn't want everybody else who was coming from the Northeast to come down. And, and there, it might be a beautiful day, right? It might be an absolutely beautiful day on the beach. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. You know, the, the wind is great. It's just a wonderful day. And everything seems good. You're happy. But I'm here to tell you, I mean, those French Canadians would ruin that day because <laughs> they would come out in their Speedos. And the thing that bothered me the most was not that. It was this. One of them, one of them would start to feed the seagulls. And if you're nearby... If you're nearby, the seagulls begin to swarm that person. And then they swarm everybody. So imagine you go from one happy day, happy day at the beach, and one guy has a bright idea beginning to feed bread to the seagulls. It goes from happiness to a lot of mess real quick. It's not fun. And so it's amazing how our happiness just kind of comes and goes you know, meaning and fulfillment. You think that you know, your stuff or the things that you receive, you know, are going to bring you happiness or joy. And at, and at Christmas, we turn to stuff sometimes, right? Like we, we actually begin to, I mean, how, how many of you are a little anxious about some of the gifts that you've bought, wondering if the person that you've bought them for is going to like it? You bought them a gift. 
They should just be thankful that you're giving them anything, right? But we become anxious thinking that we want other people to feel good about themselves and to give us this sense of gratitude so that we feel better about ourselves. That's all a yearning and a pursuit of happiness. And then think about you know, the stuff that you get, right? I mean, what's amazing about the things that you get, think about, can you remember what you got from last Christmas that still has great meaning for you right now? Or the things that you got maybe two or three Christmases ago? These things don't give us meaning. They might give us momentary, fleeting happiness in our happenings, but they don't give us joy. You see, joy... And let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Joy is found here. No, notice, notice the shepherds. The shepherds are told that we bring you good news. Again, that good news is that a new king is ruling and reigning, and there will be great joy that will be for all the people. And, and in the midst of this great joy, really what happens is there's now this opportunity for peace among those with whom he is pleased. This, the, the song of salvation that the angels sing is one of peace on earth. And what that means is, is that, you know, from Genesis chapter 3, where the fall of man and the abruptness of the fall and sin entering in and twisting everything, now it will all be made better because of this person. This person named Jesus. And that we're heralding You'll hark the herald, we're heralding, we're proclaiming that this Jesus is the only one that can bring you true joy. Matter of fact, he is true joy incarnate. And what's beautiful about what the shepherds do is the shepherds don't ponder it, think about it. They make haste to go to Bethlehem. Now, what's surprising though is think about this. In verse 9, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you're like, yes. And then he says, and, I will, and this will be a sign for you. Now, I'll just stop there before you go on. If you're a shepherd, you're a sinful, dishonest shepherd. The glory has shown up. He says, fear not. But you, you know a little bit about the Old Testament. You know that a king would rule and reign. He would throw off the shackles of the Roman tyranny. He would actually bring peace in the world, that, that the Jewish nation would be uplifted and that it would be a blessing and that the overflow of grace that comes forth from heaven would flow forth to the entire world. You're thinking, all right, this is going to be a great sign. This is going to be an amazing sign, Right? Like, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a tower? Is it going to be a palace? This is going to be incredible. And what happens is, rather than this incredible sign, it's one of the most humble signs you've ever seen. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, think about that. It would, it would, hard, it would be hard not to think about this to be the most disappointing sign you've ever seen. Again, Christopher Ashe, let me just say this. He, he writes, he goes, everything is wrong. It's a baby, an infant wrapped in claws, swaddling claws, which means it must be a newborn baby. And as every parent knows, nothing is more helpless than a newborn. They're absolutely helpless. You have to do everything, everything for a baby. They can't walk, they can't talk, they can't crawl, they can't even lift up their heads. More than that, the sign is a baby lying in an animal's feeding trough. There's no expensive crib for this little boy. He is born of a poor mother, excluded from society, unimpressive in every way. The sign, the sign of this baby in this trough, it's 
just unimpressive. And yet, nothing but nothing about this sign suggests that he is the king, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. But it does. In the poignant music of his birth, we hear the sad melody of his death. And by that weak death, he will defeat all the powers of evil. We'll be crowned as Messiah and Lord. We'll be, strong, we'll be the strong Savior of all who will trust in him. This sign is precisely right. It is by his weakness that he is strong, by his vulnerability that he is the conqueror, by his sufferings that he will be the Savior. Marvel with the shepherds at the, this conquering baby, this meek Messiah, this despised Lord. As you marvel, consider also that you are called to walk in his footsteps. It is strength, success, and impressiveness we long for. Yet weakness, discouragement, and vulnerability is the way of the manger. The way to joy is found in the person of Jesus. I mean, don't we all long for that? Don't we all long for strength and success and impressiveness? And yet Jesus shows up in a manger to dispel that. And the way that he was born is similar to the way that he died. We would think that the Messiah, the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament thought that he would come and he would rule and reign and, and vanquish the Romans. And yet he died on the cross to set the captives free. He died on the cross as a substitution for our sins so that we might be made right with God. That's what the angel said, peace. He comes that we might have peace. And we long for that. We long for that peace that comes. I mean, what happens when we pursue the, the happiness or the happenings of this world? You know, when we think about, you know, when we try to pursue what Thomas Jefferson told us to pursue, every person here today, when we pursue those things, we will be frustrated, bitter, hopeless, angry, anxious, lonely, and bone-weary. But when we come to Jesus, there's the promise and the fulfillment of joy that comes with peace with God. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate Jesus and the, the, the beginning of him putting all things right. Just the beginning. That's the beauty of Advent. That's the beauty of Christmas. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if you had um, to tell somebody what will give you lasting joy in this world, joy beyond the, the, the pain of sickness and illness, Joy that actually brings about um, sustaining joy in the midst of difficulty and trouble and, and conflict. The answer is Jesus. The person of Jesus. And in the same way that the shepherds came out, I, I love the way that the shepherds come to the, the baby, Jesus. When the angels went away from them into heaven, in verse 15, and they said, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Essentially, what they're saying is, I want to experience and see this joy that is promised. And they went with haste. They didn't mess around. You know, they said, let's go right now. Like, I don't want to wait for anything else. I want the joy that has been promised by the Lord God of heaven that will be found in this manger. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they began to tell other people, saying that they had been told what they had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And, but look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here's what I want you to think about the shepherds now. The shepherds are still shepherds after they meet Jesus. Their happenings don't change. But the fact that they met Jesus, the fact that they saw the Savior, gave them a joy that transcended them being shepherds anymore. They weren't, they still were shepherds probably the rest of their lives, but their lives had been impacted where there was a joy that they had met and would now worship. I mean, really, what are we pursuing today? Are you pursuing self-improvement? Are you pursuing other people thinking that they might give you meaning and joy? Or are you pursuing the world thinking that it might sustain you and bring you peace? Let me close with this quote by Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, uh, a Puritan, wrote this. Speaking about Jesus, he says this. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven that the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should nurse at his mother's breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman, and that woman which himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bore, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother that the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. This was not only amazing, but miraculous. Brothers and sisters, may we worship the Lord, knowing that peace with God only comes through knowing the person of Jesus. You know, in front of us today, not only were we able to bring about and talk about the initiatory sign into the covenant of grace, but we have the ongoing sign of participation in, in the family of God. And it is this bread, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this represents my body given for you. And this cup, which is filled with this juice, represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant in his blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, in Jesus, we find forgiveness and life. And everything in the Old Testament, all of the, the tabernacle and the temple and the priestly office, all of those things are shadows pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He is the new king ruling and reigning. And if he is your king, then he welcomes you to feast at his table. If you don't know who Jesus is this day, if you are uncertain as to what he has done, or you're like, I'm not sure, then we have elders that come up, and they, they're right up here on this, this side, to, to my left, your right, and they would love to answer any questions you have about Jesus and what he's done. But if you believe and trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you have no hope except in him, then he invites you to come.
Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this bread will always remain bread and this juice will always remain juice. But Father, you set aside these elements, these, this juice and this bread, Lord, and you pour forth grace upon us as we partake. And Father, as we feast upon this meal, Father, I pray, Lord, that this would be an appetizer for what the great wedding feast of the Lamb will be, when we will be with you forever. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would look to Jesus for our joy, that we would not look to this world or to others to bring us lasting joy, but I pray, Lord, that as we come, we would be grateful and thankful for all that you have given us. Father, help us to trust and believe. Father, pour forth grace upon grace which flows freely from heaven upon your children. Father, help us to worship you. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.